1 Peter 2.18. And it goes like this. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, if you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body, on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, as I explained on Thursday, here is Peter writing this letter to what? pilgrims. That's how Christians are addressed. And like I said Thursday night, that is something that we should always keep in mind. This earth is our place where we live now. It's our home for the time being. This earth, this life is the place of our sojourn. We're on a journey and we've stopped. That's the mindset we should have. We're pilgrims and we're on a journey. That's the mindset we should have. But our permanent home is with our Lord Jesus, where he is. And that's what the word teaches. One day we'll be caught up and we'll be with him and we will forever be with the Lord. Whether you die first and then get caught up and given a new body or the rapture comes and you're taken out of this world and you're caught up with him, we will all together be with the Lord one day. And so that's where our minds need to be firmly placed. And so as Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And then as we have progressed through the passages of Scripture here, what we have seen is that the Lord, using Peter to write this down, is giving instructions to his children how they now ought to live here in this life. And here we come to the next layer of these very, very important life instructions. And this passage starts off simply enough by addressing servants. And it says to servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Now, some contextualization of this is uh, valuable for our understanding, as well as being able to apply it to our own situations in life. There are some who have, in skepticism towards the Bible, tried to take passages of Scripture like this 
to say that, you know, the Bible endorses slavery and saying that, uh, that that should make the Bible something that's irrelevant because we know the cruelty of slavery. Well, we as Americans who know our history, we certainly do understand the cruelty of the type of slavery that especially in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in the history of our country was here, present in this land. And indeed, that was a great wickedness and a wickedness that this nation paid for uh, with the shedding of much blood in history and in what we call our Civil War. And even though the Civil War wasn't necessarily initially exclusively fought over the issue of slavery, even President Lincoln, before the war was over, came to realize that the great bloodshed was uh, an act of God, an act of judgment in the land to atone for that great history of, of crimes against people. It is fair to say that 2,000 years ago in the age of the Roman Empire, that sort of slavery, cer- cer- slavery certainly did exist. But there were many other types of relationships. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear is a very general statement. Somebody might be uh, a slave very much against their will in those days and in that society and in that system of government and empire. Somebody might be a slave willingly. They might be a slave for a season because they've agreed to pay a debt that way. They might be a slave because they've entered into a life contract. There were even occasions of employment being very similar to modern situations of employment, which we would characterize in our own nation today as employment at will. A person can get a job and a person can simply leave that job whenever they want. But the point is that there were all sorts of relationships like that. And the attempt here by Peter to say, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear, is not to make a commentary pro or con about slavery or about any particular kind of relationship. What Peter is doing here is he's making an endorsement of Christ-like behavior in whatever circumstance you're in that involves a relationship with authority. Now that understanding of it, I think, can touch each one of us. Because a servant-master relationship, probably most commonly applied in modern America, would be to that of an employee with his employer. But I would suggest to you that there are other situations where at least in principle, you can put this into practice and be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, which is always our goal when we come to God's word. I think that if you're a student and you're in a school situation, and there's authority there. You can take what Peter's about to say here and make some application of that. Even in a recreational capacity, if you're a player on some kind of sports team and there's an authority structure, a coach, you can make some application to that. 
If you're part of any sort of civic group and there's an executive board or officers, you can apply it to that. I have a great deal of experience as a musician. I've been both a leader of musical groups and a player in musical groups. And that there's, there, is a, there is an authority structure de facto, if you will. Whatever it is, certainly primarily what he has in mind is the person that you work for, whatever the circumstances may be. But this is something that in principle, in principle, I think there are probably a lot of ways you can apply this in your life. Because what he's doing is he's endorsing, like I said, Christ-like behavior in whatever circumstance you're in that involves that kind of relationship. So in verse 18, he makes the statement, and then verses 19 through 20, he offers a rationale. And then the real highlight of this passage is verses 21 through 25, where he gives us the great example of this, which, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. What a statement. Remember, what are we? Pilgrims, sojourners, We're in a land, we're in a place that is not our permanent home. When we find ourselves in these situations, we are called, what? To be submissive to our masters and not just the ones who we think are good to us, not just the ones who we think are nice to us, not just the ones we think are fair to us, but even also, what? To the harsh. Now, we should back up a little bit to think, to see what I think really sets in motion what Peter is after here. And this is the passage that we read on Thursday night. You can see in verse 13, it says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And it's that phrase, for the Lord's sake, that really set that whole passage off and I think carries through into this passage concerning servants and masters, and it even carries through into the next chapter when he talks about wives and husbands. For the Lord's sake. The statement that needs to be made here is that this command and the other commands in this section of the Bible are given to Christians concerning their conduct and their behavior because what should be quintessentially vital and important to every Christian is what we would call, and I've said this many times, his or her personal testimony. That is the manner of living, how we act, what we do, our works, and how we speak, how we treat other people. All of these things that are outworkings of our existence here on this planet that other people can observe our relationships with other people. In all of that, what we care about is the sake of the Lord. That is, we're interested in being good witnesses and good testimonies of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want people to observe how we live and say, God has really made a wonderful change in this person's life, maybe. Or, wow, this person says he loves God. This person says he loves Jesus. And, you know, I can tell that he really does. Because I see his life and he looks like Jesus, which is where this passage goes. That's what matters, is the Lord's sake. And that's why he says, 
submit yourself to your masters with all fear. In other words, show respect for the person who is in authority over you. Don't blow your testimony with petty complaints. Look, it doesn't mean you have to always be silent if there's something wrong and you need to speak up. You do that. But you do it with respect. Show some reverence and respect for the people who happen to be an authority over you in whatever setting in life it may be, primarily on your job. Don't be a chronic complainer. Don't be someone who is making life miserable for everybody else around you. Be someone, even if that person is harsh towards you, is what Peter says, for the sake of the Lord and the sake of the testimony of the gospel, be submission, submissive with all fear. Because why? Everything we do in our lives, we're serving the Lord. What is your job? What is your chief vocation in life? Where are you at in life? Are you a student? Are you a worker? Whatever it is, we are called elsewhere in Scripture to do everything heartily, what? As unto the Lord. You're working on your job. You're working for God. If you're in Christ, yes. You're a student. You're a student for God. If you're a Christian... Whatever it is you're doing, you do it unto the Lord. And that's why Peter says here, be submissive because we care about our testimony. Be respectful. Be reverent towards those who are in authority over you. That's the statement that he makes. Now, here's a little bit of rationale that he gives starting in verse 19. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief. In other words, because of your knowledge of God, Because you know God and you know God to be one who has been gracious to you and you know God to be one who is beautiful and merciful and forgiving but also holy and righteous. That's conscience towards God. You really know God and God is at work in your mind and in your spirit. If because of that knowledge of God you endure grief, suffering wrongfully, that's commendable. This is a revolutionary thought because we are taught, especially, let's be honest, as Americans, I mean, we're taught to just fight for everything. I mean, anything that we perceive to be the violation of a right, we're taught to fight and we're up in arms. Remember, it's okay to speak out. It's it's not saying be silent, but what it's saying is be respectful and be reverent with all fear. Christians should have a reputation for being the most respectful people who will even endure suffering wrongfully because of their knowledge of God and their fear of God and their worship of God. That's the stamp on the character of a Christian that this world has to be able to see because it was exemplified in the one who we call our Lord This is commendable because of conscience toward God. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. And then a rhetorical question to explain it more. What credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? I mean, if I'm in the wrong and I suffer for it, 
and I take that patiently, well, there might be a, a certain virtue to that, to own up if you've made a mistake and own up if you've done something wrong. But if you're suffering because your attitude has been bad, if you're suffering because of your own faults, well, you're just getting what you deserve. There's nothing particularly commendable about that, is what Peter is saying, at least in comparison to suffering for righteousness' sake, which is really what he's after. What credit is it when you are beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? However, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. If you're walking right and you suffer for the sake of that walking right, at the hand of your master, and really at the hand of anybody, if you want to extend beyond what Peter's talking about. If you walk right and humbly and respectfully in this life, and you suffer in whatever way for it, you are glorifying God. You know why you're glorifying God? Because the one who you name as your Lord and Savior did the same. And May I say to you, that is literally what to glorify something means. To glorify something means to lift it up, to hold it up, and to show it to the world to be beautiful. And when you walk as Jesus walked, that's like one of the ultimate ways that in this life you can glorify him. I mean, the greatest way we glorify him is like what we sang about, only trust him, put your faith in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Respond to the gospel the way that God says respond to the gospel. But here, as you walk day by day, is a way that the Lord can be glorified, is to walk like him. Just as Christ suffered, even though he committed no wrong, us the same. We walk humbly and righteously, and if we suffer for it, it's commendable before God. The world might think, I mean, who knows what the world might think about you? But what God thinks is, there's one of my children acting like my son. And it's commendable. How much of what we do is truly commendable before God? I mean, we're saved entirely by his grace. There's nothing that we do to, con to contribute to our own salvation. It's entirely the work of Christ. It's entirely the work of God moving on a sinner's heart to bring him to faith and to salvation. Look at, look at what an astonishing statement this is. There's actually something that we can live out in our lives that's commendable before God. And what is it? Living as Jesus lived. Living righteously and just bearing whatever reproach may come because of it. It's a powerful thought. It's a powerful thought. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what's my ministry? How do I know my spiritual gifts? What has God called me to in this life? It says here, this is, see verse 21, for to this you were called. You know, you want to know what God's will for your life is? Start with the things that the Bible says are God's will for your life. Here's something that you were called to, was to walk in righteousness and endure whatever harsh treatment or persecution or suffering comes because of it. That's the way of the Christian. That's the revolutionary, counterintuitive way of the one who loves Jesus Christ. Because look what this says. 
It says, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. In other words, if Christ suffered for us, can we endure a little suffering for his sake? For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. Now look at this. Leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And then comes a a, a passage of scripture with a bunch of quotes of statements from Isaiah chapter 53, which we rightly understand to be a great prophetic chapter concerning the suffering of Jesus to bring us to salvation. But what Peter does here is he takes that passage and not just applies it to the, to the redemptive work that Christ did, but says that even in doing that redemptive work to save our souls, he also did what? He provided for us an example for how we ought to live. Amazing, revolutionary, and powerful. It even says that. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And then the the, the quotations from the prophecy in Isaiah 53 starts, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. In other words, Jesus did nothing wrong, but how was he treated? Jesus did nothing wrong, Nothing wrong with his actions, nothing wrong with his mouth. Never spoke a deceitful word, never committed a sin. And yet how was he treated? It says in the next verse, he was reviled. That means he was hatefully spoken against. What did he do when he was reviled? It says who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Christians, this is our example. When, he was, when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile back. When Jesus was mocked, when Jesus was backbitten about, when Jesus was talked down, shouted down, insulted, he didn't return any of it. And we're told here by Peter, that's the mark in our conduct that we're shooting for. Look at this. He did not threaten. He could have threatened. You and I think we can threaten, right? I mean... It's, it's, like a, it's, it's like an American virtue or something. If someone says something bad about you, to be able to be as snarky as possible and coming back at them and threaten them and put fear into them. Let me tell you something. If somebody wanted to put fear into someone, it was Jesus, right? Who, when he was going to his crucifixion, the Bible says he could have called on legions of angels to stop the whole thing. He didn't. When he was reviled, he didn't even revile back. He suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. There's your example. When we suffer for walking righteously, the reason we don't shoot back, the reason we put the sake of the Lord, the reason we put our testimony first is because we know who we serve, right? And we know that He is the one who will make all righteous judgment. We commit ourselves to him. It's the the hymn that we sometimes sing, which is a quotation from one of Paul's epistles to Timothy. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And you know what? Paul was suffering for having not done anything wrong when he wrote those words in 2 Timothy. Right? So that's, that's even what that is about. It's the same thing. Now, the ultimate example 
of what Jesus did is even brought to light in the words here. Who himself, look, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, we understand, and let me just explain it here, the redemptive quality of that statement. It's powerful. The tree is a reference to what we would more commonly call the cross. When Jesus' body was on the cross, he was bearing the brunt of the holy wrath of God against our sin. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Right? But now, you need to stop here because maybe you're listening to this and if you haven't come to Christ and put your faith in him, you still bear your own sin. See, that's really what it's about. Jesus died on the cross and he bore our sins in his body when he died on the cross. That is appropriated. The benefit of that is received when a person humbles themselves, repents, that is, turns from their own, is, is broken in their own sinfulness and turns to Jesus in faith. And instead of continuing to try to justify themselves because they think they're okay, they're not that bad, I'm not as bad as that guy over here, look at all the good things I've done, well, I'm a good Catholic, I'm a good Protestant, I'm a good Baptist, I'm a good this, I'm a good that, whatever, whatever. Listen, none of it's worth anything. None of it's worth a thing. When we come to the end of all that and we put our faith in Christ, we receive eternal salvation as his gift entirely by his grace. Christ bore your sin in his body when he died on the cross. Come to Jesus if you haven't. We sang about it a minute ago. He said, come unto me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest from the burden of your sin. Come to him. But to point that out is to actually not use the statement the way that Peter does while it is certainly true that, obviously, it's at the core of everything we hope for and believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to bring us eternal salvation. But what Peter's saying here is, in addition to the redemptive work that Jesus did, he also provided an example for our conduct in his suffering, even his, even his suffering on the cross is an example for our conduct as his followers. Let me tell you what it does not say in verse 24. It does not say, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might have everlasting life. Do you see that it does not say that? What does it say? It says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So Christ not only saved us to bring us eternal salvation, but he died and left us an example for how we ought to live as people who are the gracious recipients of his grace, the grateful recipients of his grace. Look, by whose stripes you were healed. That's another reference. These are all references to Isaiah 53. Jesus in his wounds shed his blood, his precious blood, that our sins might be wiped away. And in that suffering provided for us an example how we ought to live. You know the story well of when Jesus died on the cross. 
Even while he was on the cross, they stood there and they, they said things like, Aha! You, you saved others. Let, if he's the Christ, let him save himself and come down on the cross. I mean, they stood there mocking this, this beautiful, wonderful, perfect, holy, kind, loving, gracious man who was suffering and dying for having committed no actual crime of any kind. And they stood there mocking him and jeering him. And, and for us as humans to sit and think about it, it's like, oh, we just want to be there. And we want to be like Peter who, who drew out, when, he, when Jesus was arrested, whipped out a sword and cut off the ear of one of uh, uh, Herod's servants. The priest's servants, rather. We want to be like that, but that's not what Jesus did. He didn't even answer. It's described here. As, well, like I said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When they spoke like that, he he could have shot back, and he didn't. Peter is saying here that that wasn't just to save you, that was also to give you an example for, as a Christian, how you ought to live. Verse 25 says, For you were like sheep going astray, another Isaiah 53 reference, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Right? Let me play the same game with you. Let me tell you what that did not say. Ready? For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the redeemer and the savior of your souls. That's true, what I just said, but that's not what Peter says, is it? He says, he says, you have, we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Shepherd and overseer isn't just savior and redeemer. He's also shepherd and overseer. Shepherd and overseer of our souls implies that he has an active role in leading us and overseeing us as we live and walk. And what the goal is for the Christian is to walk in righteousness. And even in that righteousness, if we suffer wrongfully, just bear it up and don't even cry back. The Christians are the true revolutionaries in, that, in this world, in that regard. People who do what's right, and when they're criticized for it, they can smile because... They've been blessed to suffer as Christ himself did. This is, this is Christianity we're talking about here. This is how we shall live as Christians. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, I love this verse. Hebrews chapter 12 is about how God chastens and disciplines his children because he loves them. Do you know what that that chastening, you can look it up for yourself in Hebrews 12, 11. You know what that chastening, that discipline that God brings is supposed to bring in our lives? It says, it calls it in Hebrews 12, 11, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what God desires in the life of his children to bring out of the life of his children. And that comes sometimes even when he brings discipline into our lives. But here is Peter writing and calling us pilgrims and sojourners 
to look at the example of our Lord Jesus and produce Christ-like behavior in whatever circumstance you happen to be in in your life. Because we remember that in the end, what we care about is the Lord's sake because we have entrusted everything to him who judges righteously. Phil, come on back up here and we're going to close our service with a song now and then I'll close with prayer.